Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussion Podcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $3 a month or $25 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to A Thoughtful Faith. Today my guest is Bill Real, the podcast host from Mormon Discussions. And today on Mormon Discussion Podcast, we've got Gina Colvin. It's lovely to be here with you, Bill. Awesome. <laughs> I'm glad to, I'm glad for this chance for you and I to talk. I I got to meet you in person for the first time uh at Sunstone last year and we we had the chance to go out to dinner, you and your your husband Nathan and and uh, some friends of ours and the benches from Benchmark Books and just a wonderful dinner. I've really gotten – in my chance to sit down and get to know you, Gina, your sense of humor – it comes through in the podcast, but to be with you in person, you've just got a beautiful sense of humor and, and just a really bright spirit and grateful for the chance just to kind of sit down and talk with you. Oh, same goes, Bill, and I've watched you over the years um, with – Mormon discussions and it's been such an interesting ride for both of us and you bring up so many interesting uh, points about this faith journey that you and I share and you made the point recently that you and I are still struggling on the pew <laughs> a lot of other people have just left so what is this looking like for us at this mo- at the moment well, there's a lot more room on the pew, Gina, so we can stretch out a little bit, <laughs> right? Sure is, it sure is. Hey, can I just, can I ask, because this is a really cool story, and we've talked about it in person, but what made you a Mormon? So, I've shared the story numerous times, but I, I, and I'm having a good, so let me start over. I've got a really good job in Ohio. I'm a, uh, a baker for a family-owned restaurant. I'm making... Good money at the time, minimum wage I think was four seventy five and and I'm getting paid eight bucks an hour as a uh sixteen, seventeen year old kid. And I don't know why, but I end up just feeling impressed one day to to apply for a second job and I stop off at uh, a local McDonald's and apply and and they hire me and there's this really fascinating young woman who works there and, and she kinda has the eye for me, I kinda have the eye for her, but I'm a I'm afraid of being rejected, so I, I wait until she has the courage to ask me out. And uh, we started dating, and she turns out to be a Latter-day Saint. Her dad uh, is a really good member missionary, and he invites me to, to go to church with his family. And for a kid who had no direction in his life, for a kid who was making lots of bad choices uh, and really kind of going down the wrong path, Mormonism was the perfect thing at the perfect moment, and and I just jumped in with both feet, reading the history, diving into Fawn Brody's No Man Knows My History before I even got baptized as the missionaries were giving me the discussions, and I just fell in love with Mormon history, and, and it certainly was a more simple version, maybe a little more Bruce R. McConkie, Joseph Fielding Smith, dogmatic, theological arrogance, have all the answers – but but fell in love with it uh, nonetheless, and uh, and man, early on, Gina, it was beautiful. Like Mormonism just worked so well, 
And so as we talk about some of the tension that's, that's going on in our faith right now, and, and I think many of us, myself included, really having to come to grips with the, the, the messiness of our history, the paradoxical nature of it. Um, I look back with fondness on those first, that first decade, uh, as much as I feel the tension right now in this moment. Um, anyway, I, that's, that's kind of my, my come to Jesus or come to Mormonism moment. I, I prayed about the Book of Mormon, got an answer and, and at that time, that answer felt really, really strong, really rich, and uh, and I felt deeply impressed that this was the this was the tribe I was to join. So you, and this is a, a, a really familiar story with a lot of people who come to Mormonism, uh, particularly from those who are just slightly on the other side of the tract. In Christianity, in Christian studies or um, evangelicalism, they call it um, redemption and lift. So, you know, we churches find people and they give them a strict set of rules. And that sort of fell as stage one, two. Gives people boundaries and those boundaries hold people really, really safe. Can I ask, though, you said it was my come to Jesus moment, my come to Mormonism moment. You use those two things interchangeably. Was there ever a sense of something beyond Mormonism that was spiritually animating you? Or was was God and Mormonism and Jesus all mixed up in one? Mm. Mm. Um, Mormonism was my foundation, right? Mormonism, I put all my eggs in the Mormonism basket and, and I don't know that I picked up on it at the time. I kind of see it now, but, but in some ways, like Jesus was an appendage to my testimony. My testimony was Mormonism. My testimony was Joseph Smith, this young kid, only a few years younger than I was at the time, searching for an answer and, and getting it and, and these, these metal plates and, and these angels and, um, just all the stories that come with our church history. And, and again, you can, you could blame me. You could you could hold me accountable. You could say, "Man, Bill, you shouldn't have built your testimony on an entity. It should have been in Christ from the very beginning." But in some ways, as a 17 year old kid, like the church was cool, and it interested me, and it it gave me a chance to feel important in the world, to develop a sense of identity, to to have a chance to develop public speaking skills and develop leadership skills, and it. it it just took some kid who was barely passing school and it gave him a sense of purpose in life. And, uh, in many ways, I think, I think Mormonism was my testimony and, and Jesus certainly was a facet of it, but, but I wouldn't say they were one and the same even then. What about now? Do you see them differently? Cause I had, we had the missionaries over for dinner the other night and I said, would your, faith in God and Jesus survive a faith crisis? And it was a really difficult question for them to answer. Like one of them said, well, that's all I know is Jesus in the church and God in the church. It's all I know. So I, I, I it, there was no imagination for God and Jesus to be outside of the context of the church. Right. And in, and in some ways, Mormonism intertwines Christ with it as an institution in a way that it's really hard to untangle that knot without also letting go of Jesus. And 
and I did some episodes a while back on the historical Jesus. Uh, it was like a six part, and each one was like twenty to minutes to maybe an hour long. And I just dissected the different uh, gospel text and some of what Paul says. And 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 here's where I come down on Jesus, Gina. It, was he a historical person born Joshua or Yahshua, uh, son of Joseph? Sure, I, I think there was a real person. Did the things happen to him that are attributed to, in the gospel accounts? I don't know. I don't know. But what I what I do know is that the character that comes through the the New Testament, he's worthy of my emulation. Like he's beautiful. Like he gives the right answers to the tough questions. And he gives these answers that are dynamic and profound. And and one of the things that always struck me in my mind is that a fictional character should never be smarter than his human author, than his than his non-fictional author. Like like a real person should not be able to create a person who's more dynamic. And and I totally get maybe there's multiple authors and all that goes with the the, the scholarship of the New Testament, but. Jesus comes across as profound. He comes across as wise. He comes across as respectful of the female gender in ways that his society likely didn't. He comes across as merciful in ways that his society likely wouldn't. And so I, I kind of look at Jesus and say like, there's something there that's bigger than any real person who could have written him. And, and I don't, again, I don't know whether the historic, whether Jesus died on a cross, whether he rose on the third day, like I hope in that, but I don't know if it happened, but I do know like in some real sense, like I've been changed by the grace and mercy of Christ. And that's, and that's good enough for me. Like Jesus isn't causing me any trauma. Jesus isn't causing me any harm. Jesus gives me an example that is, beyond myself and it's something worth praising and emulating and so i'm i'm willing to find out on the other side what that all comes out to be if anything but for the here and now like jesus is worth my time and effort to to set him in front of me and 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 try to be like him does that make any sense it does it's beautiful yeah yeah and i feel similarly and i'm not sure where i'm at with respect to the post the, the post-crucifixion Jesus. I, I can't throw my hat entirely in with the resurrected Jesus. Uh, How about Nephite Jesus? No. <laughs> who, who destroys the, the entire land before he shows up. No. <laughs> but I think that's, yeah, I'm not. Ah, it's really hard because, you know, I, I, I too am in love with the historical Jesus. Like he created a movement. He created a movement that changed the whole Roman Empire. You know, there were, as a result of, of Christianity, you know, hospitals and the, the, the poor and all of these things came, became a part of, you know, the, the, the tradition of the West. Not that I'm throwing my, you know, tipping my hat at the West and any, particularly, but uh, I feel the same way. Jesus is worthy of emulation. All that other stuff, that post-crucifixion Jesus, Jesus going to America. Um, mm, big gulp there. Uh, I'm not entirely convinced about it. I don't think I need to be. 
I don't think that Jesus set up a lot of belief propositions. I think Jesus set up a lot of spiritual practices and relational practices that were healing. Yeah, and and I feel like Jesus challenges us in all the right ways. Like there's there's certainly this figure in the New Testament who's pushing back against cultural norms, against uh, the religious leaders of his day, against those of us who in moments of weakness think we're better than somebody or or that we've got this all figured out. And I, I just think he comes across as just saying those things that kind of slow us down and get us to just ponder and and think for a moment and 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 like allow some kind of new insight to come in. It, he just seems really dynamic in in a time where stories seem so two dimensional. And, and I'm speaking even of restoration scripture. The Book of Mormon comes across as a very two dimensional story. The many of the <clears throat> many of the Old Testament stories come across as very two dimensional stories. And for me, Jesus is so much three dimensional or more. I, uh, I wanted to get a thought from you. I, I don't know your story well either, and I'd love to kind of hear a little bit about uh, – one of the things that really strikes me, maybe this is the direction we'll go off on. One of the things that really strikes me, Gina, is that you have – and it comes across so, so well in the podcast. You have this like really strong – morality within yourself. Like like one of the things we always talk about, I know you've had Thomas McConkie on, I've had conversations with Thomas as well, and we both have talked about and read Fowler, we've we've both delved into to faith development and stage theory and all those things that come with it. And one of the things that comes along with that development is the letting go kind of of these outer authorities and beginning to rest that authority in yourself. And and you seem to have that really strong and I'm just curious, like, what was that transition like of moving? And I assume there was a point in your life where you didn't have that to today, like having this really strong inner authority. Like, what did that look like that that journey to to get there? That's such a good question. It's something that I've actually been doing a lot of thinking about because I'm writing about it at the moment. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, do I have inner authority? Uh, um. I suppose I've not had the luxury of being able to trust authority. So maybe I'm anti-authoritarian. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a Maori girl in a, in a, growing up in a country and particularly in a geographical region that was intensely colonial and racist. Um, and I didn't have a father. I, you know, I was the bastard. My mother was a teen mother and like everything about who I was and the world attracted the judgment of the institutions. So at school, I, I wasn't treated with the same dignity as other people were. Um, and uh, in society, you know, even though I, my father is Maori, I was always treated Maori. So I had to rest into that. And, you know, I walk around with my ethnicity and my race so I suppose I've had to think a lot about what that means. But at the same time, and here's the thing that Mormonism did for me. It gave me that dignity. When everybody else said, hey, you are just a brown bastard girl uh, in this white world filled with hubris, you're something. Like you have immense potential. And nobody else was telling me that. Just church. Uh, 
and I suppose, and, and that's what grabbed my heart. And, but, and then on top of that, sort of, on top of that were these, ex- from a really, really young age, Bill, I always had a sense of God. Really, really had a sense of God. Uh, and that God was something else. And I, uh, that, that was something that was sort of separate from any particular church. So Mormonism was a really good instrument of socialization and helping me see that I was a person of worth and that I had, um, I had talents, that I had something to offer the world. And as you said, you know, it made me feel that, you know, I could be important and I could be significant. Uh, you know, I wasn't irrelevant as a human being. But I, uh, you know, I had this very messy upbringing. So in one day I'd be going to junior Sunday school and then I'd be going to the, the Baptist church and with the people who took care of me. Uh, what, cause my mother was a working mother and I needed childcare. And so we, I became very close to this Dutch family. Uh, so I, would spend a lot of time with them and we would go to the Baptist church and then we'd go for sacrament meeting in, in the evening uh, and then there would be... So I was going backwards and forwards and I was singing, seeing how beautiful God spoke into these communities. And it was it was an absolute mystery to me that my mother and my Dutch, I'll call them family, were sort of at odds about what was true. Like it didn't occur to me that there should even be an argument it was just there were two separate for me there were two different containers for faith where god would show up in different ways but it was always god yeah so i don't know did that answer your question um about inner authenticity <laughs> yes yeah, so i yeah i don't mm. i i i mean Maybe it's easier to see it kind of in others sometimes than than just yourself. I want to go back to something you said though. The the idea that Mormonism gave you this this dignity that the rest of your society wasn't giving you, and that it gave you like purpose and, and gave you something to say like, yeah, I'm important and and I'm a child of God and and I can accomplish great things. I'm also curious too because I've had tons of conversations over the last month or two with people who relate to that same ideal that the church gave them purpose. But at the same time, did you feel like the church also said, but your purpose is to fit in this certain way? Like, like you have purpose, but only if you kind of fit in this small box here. Does that make sense? Like I'm trying to figure out because I've had people share with me, like they've just recently come to grips that, while the church was really incredible in their youth, later on in life they realized that it was only if they fit what the tribe's expectations were that they were seen as being positive to the tribe. And I'm curious, as you grew up in the church and you saw that it was giving you purpose, do you look back now and also realize like you had to fit it a certain way though? Well, this is an interesting question because I was active in the church up until I was nine and then my mother married. She married a Catholic who was just very, very, he was so severe uh, in his hatred towards all things Mormon. So basically he said, you can't go to church. And so my mother sort of slipping into inactivity anyway at that point and we became Catholic for a while. Uh, 
which didn't have the same claim on my heart, I have to say. Nothing against Catholicism, but I found it... I, I like the mysticism, I suppose. I like the ritual, uh, but it, it befuddled me. Uh, I didn't understand it particularly well. Um, and then because I was a Mormon, I was a baptized Mormon, I wasn't allowed to take communion either. So I sort of was a, this enforced uh, in this enforced hiatus into Catholicism, but mm. not allowed to be part of it. I couldn't. I wasn't allowed to go to a Catholic girls' school, which I really wanted to go to. Interestingly, I ended up teaching at that same school, so things kind of go around. Um, but but when I was sixteen, and and then we had a lot of disruption. I had a lot of disruption as a teenager, uh, and. When I was uh, 14, and I was actually in a police station, the, di- the district president came and collected me. And there's, you know, I, Mormon, the Mormons had been sort of out there in my periphery, and then in my greatest hour of need, the Mormons showed up. And they said, you need a new place, you need another place to stay, and I stayed mm. with a Mormon family, and they were so gracious and kind. I went back home, uh, sort of... Once again, on the spiritual fringes, and then at age 16, I woke up one day to a voice saying, it's time for you to go back to church. And I just did. Um, mm. So, and I can't, I can't dismiss God in that. I can't, I absolutely can't, because from, from that moment, something claimed me because it was so good but back to your original question when I came back to church at age age 16 I could no longer live with my Catholic stepfather and so another family claimed me it was a state president's family and they were wonderful just wonderful and this is the great thing about Mormonism that people become very intimate with each other very quickly and become like family uh, and so I have this sort of great legacy of all of these Mormon people who have been my family and so important in raising me over the years. But I have to say that one of the things that confused me that I didn't wasn't exposed to as a young child was the culture. Like I noticed that Mormonism didn't fit entirely with my New Zealand culture or even Maori culture, that there were odd expectations. Like I couldn't figure out why we talked in such gracious and sort of elevated tones about pioneers. Uh, what's that got to do with us? You know, what, what about... What about our Mormon pioneers in New Zealand? Don't we get to celebrate them? And then there were odd things in the young women's. The young women's manuals and our lessons in there were very, they were body shaming. They were confusing. And I remember saying, and I had a boyfriend at the time, his, his grandfather was an apostle and his parents were on a mission with the mission presidents in New Zealand. And she asked me how I felt about the church, and I said, "I, I just, I'm confused about the culture. Like the 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 youth weren't particularly nice. It was very judgmental. Like the way that we showed up with church seemed to, it seemed to matter what you were wearing, and that confused me as well. There was just a whole lot of stuff that uh, that just confused me. American history, that constant influx of Americans telling us how we weren't getting it right." Manifest destiny, you know, this is the promised land. I'm like, well, how's it going to work? I don't even have an American passport. How the hell can I go to Zion? 
Like, what, what, am I supposed to always be aching to go to Utah? I don't want to go to Utah. I don't want to live there. I like my country. So there were just all these things constantly that just rattled around in my head that, that didn't make sense. And I've never added up. Never. I've never been able to reconcile them, Bill. Right, right. I, my, my mind is going to the idea of, of faith crisis and, we use that word because everybody knows what we're talking about, but I feel like that word, that word almost puts the blame on the person. Like you did something wrong and now you're in crisis. And I think on the other side of that transition, at least maybe not the other side, but at least far enough in that I can look back on it with some reflection. And I, I see that whatever that was, it, it really wasn't crisis. It felt like it at the time. But really what it was was the beginning of growth. And and I'm curious in your life, like I don't want to call it faith crisis, but we'll use that word. What was it, Gina, that that all of a sudden took like your worldview and your perception of Mormonism and then just one day just turned it on its head? Mm, I don't know. I think it was a slow creep. I think it was, it, I'd never been entirely, uh, in sync with the culture. I think there was a, I married very young to the wrong person. It was sort of a dear John situation and fiancés in England on missions and too young and pressure to get married and someone shows up and suddenly I'm married and, um, this person is called as a bishop. So I went through some very muscular Mormon years of trying to make it work. You know, you have to be very gritty to try and kind of check all the boxes, don't you? And you have to be kind yeah. of mean. <laughs> like You have to, you know, you can't be nuanced in this, it, right. it, it feels like. Um, and so I sort of became quite authoritarian, not authoritarian, but just quite regimented and and black and white and it was quite miserable actually and and fortunately my marriage ended so I got to experience a new kind of nuance which was that the church is utterly and absolutely useless and helping people negotiate divorce um yeah and um there were all sorts of terrible terrible surprises in that in the way that they managed it um, and I thought, wow, okay, so this is who I am as a woman. And then I suppose that sort of started unraveling any sense of attachment I had to the institution as a, as a, as a benevolent organization, as some, as an organization that's set up to care for my soul. But at the same time, I'm having these extraordinary experiences with God. It was just kind of me and God hanging out. And dealing with this thing that had just blown up. Um, and so, so there were kind of twin things, like there's the deepening of my sense of, of, of God's presence and boundless love. And at the same time, there was my growing mistrust, which, you know, my, my, my field of trust when it comes to institutions don't sink deep anyway, you know, the, like the roots don't sink too deeply. But I'm looking at the institution thinking, there's something really, really wrong with what's going on here. So, yeah. I know, does that answer the question? It it does. Um, Like you, I've really, just over the last few months, it's really kind of soaked into me that, and again, I'm not, I'm not talking truth claims and, and, 
you know, we can always hash those out. But like, there's something unhealthy here. And because we built these walls and moats around these truth claims, like it's almost impossible for, for us to stand up and say that. Like there's something unhealthy here that, that boundaries have been distorted and the way in which we, we talk and treat each other, we, the moment someone doesn't fit the Mormon mold, Mormonism tends to get really unhealthy for them. And, and I've, it's only been the last few months that I've really had to kind of come to grips with that and to some extent, like even see it in my own life. Like I, I can feel that unhealthiness and, and it weighs on me. And I'm curious, you mentioned, um, being divorced and the church, uh, not really being helpful to you in that, in that time. I guess my question is, do we, do we put so much emphasis on marriage and so much emphasis on having children and so much emphasis on husband and a wife, a male and a female being sealed in the temple that, that we almost have no way, no words, no language to tell a single man or woman, a, a divorced brother or sister, like you're still a whole person. Well, that's a good question. I don't know. I just, when, when it all happened, and it happened r- rather gratuitously actually, um, you know, they're involved in a fear, not mine. Um, <laughs> and I like immediately needed some sucker. I needed some assurance. So I went to every ensign that you could read and it said, you know, how important marriage was. Uh, and none of them answered the question. Well, what do you do when marriage goes tits up? That's a New Zealand saying, or kind of a British saying. Do you, do you have that thing? Tits up. We, I, I hear you, but that's not a saying we use over here in southern Utah. Oh, okay. Well, tits up. Yeah, like when it dies. <laughs> it wasn't a, a great deal of uh, help to figure out, like, what do you do when you're divorced? Who are you when you're divorced? Or when you're separating, like, you know, we're supposed to, ba- you know, kind of leap from one place to the next, um, you know, so from singleness to marriage. And then if there's divorce, well, there's a big, huge black hole over that. We don't even talk about divorce. Right. There's very little in terms of understanding who the church thinks you are when you're no longer married to the person that used to be married, particularly if that person was a bishop. Did I mention that, that he was called right. as a bishop? Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's just very confusing. And once again, we come back to this, these twin things happening. My disappointment with the church and my lack of expectations being met with the church were always countered with multiple, multiple experiences with God that spoke so deeply into my soul that changed me, that humbled me, that reoriented me, that helped me, help, helped me feel held and loved. Uh, so I don't know. I don't, uh, once again, I feel like I'm kind of not quite answering your question, but I like, I, I want to come back to you though, Bill, like how are your faith crisis? How did that happen for you? Like you say over the last few months that something 
is working in you, but this hasn't been a last few months thing for you. I, I knew that the church had critics from the from the very early onset of me taking the discussions from the missionaries. And I, I knew that the critics had, you know, criticisms that they were making of the church. And I was aware that there were apologists. And the apologists were these people who were more informed and they were the ones who were providing answers for these questions that the average member just didn't know about. And the average member didn't know there was a problem, nor did they know there was an answer. And for the longest time, those, those simple answers and simple in terms of like, you don't need to read a ton. Here's an answer. It fixes everything. And even though I'm saying simple answer, in some ways that answer was so complex, right? Like, like book of Abraham, there's a missing scroll or, or yeah, it's a catalyst. So even though Joseph thinks he's translating the words of Abraham written by his own hand, he's not translating. It's not the words of Abraham and it's not written by his own hand. And, but those simple answers early on, they worked and, and I believed in them and I, and I kind of had this arrogance like, I know the problems that the rest of the members don't know and I know the answers to those problems. And there was a lot of pride in that. And I go through the church and I'm 38 now. Um, I served as a bishop and I was called when I was 29 years old in the same ward that I converted to as a teenager. And, and here's these people who just took care of me and now it's my turn to take care of them. And that calling, like it, it humbled me and it, it compelled me to grow and it compelled me to let go of some of these black and white paradigms that I had held. And so about two and a half years into being a, a bishop, it wasn't learning any problem. Like I knew the problems. But what I did for the first time in my life was instead of seeing like it's black or white, it's us versus them, it's it's my way or the highway, I, I begin to say like there are problems and there's some depth to these questions and I begin to like probe those questions and deconstruct various facets of our history or deconstruct various facets of our theology and I begin to ask like why do we believe what we believe and as I took everything apart, again, about two and a half years into serving as a bishop, like I just woke up one morning and so I'm, I don't know, I'm 30, 31 years old, 32 years old at the time. And I just think to myself, like, let go of the arrogance that you knew the problems and you know some simple answers. Like, let's ask ourselves, like, why don't we know the story? Why don't we know the narrative of the church? And so it wasn't any particular issue, although certainly the book of Abraham bothered me. Certainly, um, coming to grips with other facets of our, our history with polyandry and young brides and all those other things bothered me. But it was almost a culmination of saying like, why am I the only person in my ward who knows these issues? Why am I the only person in the ward who knows some of this stuff doesn't add up? And it was beginning to kind of realize that it's an institutional mechanism that that kind of shields us all and protects us all from taking the deep dive. And the moment somebody does take the deep dive and they begin to share some of those things they're seeing or thinking or reading in a class, then those mechanisms show up again to kind of 
distance that person from the rest of the class and not not allow them a safe space to share that diversity or those differences of opinion. You know, um, Ali Isom in the interview with um, Doug Fabrizio said that Relief Society is the perfect place to hash out these questions. And I would simply, right? And I would simply say like, there's no, there's no block within that three hour block that's a safe space to not fit in the box. And, and I had to come face to face with that. And, and then in the last month or two, what's, what's been different is I've kind of come to a realization. I always knew there were parts of Mormonism that weren't healthy. And it's the reason I try to be a voice and try to raise my hand and say, Hey, something's wrong here. But I, I never thought Mormonism would be directly unhealthy for me. Like I'll just grin and bear it and I can tough this out and I can stand at the front of this and, and people can fire shots and I'll, I'll take some of those. No big deal. But in the last few months, what I'm realizing is that my, my mind deciding what it's going to do and not going to do doesn't control the effect these things are having on my body. Like my body feels anxiety that it's never felt before. My body feels tension. It's never felt before. And, and so in some ways, my intellect had a crisis of faith. Eight years ago, but my emotions, parts of me that I didn't even know were there are, are beginning to have kind of a crisis right now. Mm. This is interesting, isn't it? Because we just hold so much in our bodies. Uh, we do. Um, and, and it's, it's interesting. You and I <laughs> have a similar thing because like I hadn't realized how damaging m- my faith crisis or my kind of church crisis, I would call. I, I don't think my faith has changed at all. I just think my church, my, my relationship with the church has ch- changed spectacularly. But I, I hadn't realized just how stressful it has been. Like on me and on our family and my, and my relationship with Nathan, like it has had, pay, you know, it has exacted a huge toll uh, emotionally and even physically. Would you say that you – I've often said like I feel PTSD from Mormonism mm-hmm. and I think some people – some people in the very conservative side of Mormonism would would shrug their shoulders at that and say that's just a silly thing to say. And But for me, the reality is like my the, – the language my body is telling me is that something has happened and my body doesn't want to handle this anymore. Right, right. I, I do think it's PTSD. And look, I, I'm, I'm in a very, very liberal area of the church, or liberal, but a very loving. My experience in my home city, which is Christchurch, has, has been fabulous. I, we had a year in another city in New Zealand and I'm still suffering from what happened there. I, I think the big kind of bump for me that made me question whether or not I should actually be a Mormon happened there. Now, I I cannot imagine what it's like living with that daily. So I can pretty much put up my hand and say anything. You know, somebody got shouty at me a few weeks ago, but, you know, I think we're all over that, and she still loves me, and I love her. Um, but to live with that on a weekly basis, to show up with the possibility that people suspect you, People are, uh, 
like don't honor you people can't res- that, that you can't bring your questions to the to the very place that aroused these questions in the first place that there is a, th- a threat and fear hanging over you I, I just I cannot imagine doing that year after year week after after week and it makes me freaking furious that people should go in there with tender hearts uh, and questions and because that's how we show up in sacred spaces we go in there with tenderness and to be treated so badly and to be shut down, I, I, it just makes me wild. It makes me furious. It makes me want to tip tables and take out whips and clean out the, these, this den of thieves and iniquitous humans. Let's send out the money changers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, uh, I lived in Ohio up until two years ago and Again, convert to this ward. I serve as a bishop in this ward. In some ways, I had built up a lot of uh, collateral and credibility. And so I could go into a class and I could really almost say whatever I wanted. And, and nobody was going to, to come after me or to ch- really like challenge me from a place of like, this is our church. This is the ground we hold. So I have to push back against you solely for that reason. And and almost because it was just a small ward. You had 115, 120 people show up every Sunday. And like if you were just breathing and you would say yes to a calling, like it didn't matter what you believe. Like just show up and we could use you and, and you'll be our family. And you're right about Mormonism building that family, a feeling of family really quick. And then I come out here to Utah. And the other thing too about Ohio is – it covered like 11 cities and three counties was my ward and, and all of us just met in the one building. And and so all through the week, like the chances of me running into one of my ward members was slim to none. And when you did, like it was a happy thing. Like, look, there's sister so-and-so or brother so-and-so. And again, because like they are our family, let's go talk to them. Let's go say hi. Let's let them know we see them. And then I move out here to southern Utah and half the population is Mormon if not more. And so when I walk outside my door after just yelling at my kids because they did something wrong and then my bishop's four houses down or my high councilman is five houses down or my elders quorum president is three houses down and, and you realize like these people, again, good people and I don't know what the difference is, but in Ohio, those relationships were more real mm-hmm. and we would go out and, and we would go out and, and have dinner together and have game night at each other's houses. And it was a, it was a blessing to be able to see each other outside of church. And in Utah, it's almost like, oh, I have to see you on Sunday. Can I, and I have to almost force to run into you sometime during the week. Can I have some space, please? And there's, there's not that strong, and again, it could be just me, there's not that strong sense of, like, we, we love you and welcome you as you are, bring your differences to the table. Whereas I think there's a much stronger place for that out in the mission field. Right. I, I agree. Uh, and we have a similar experience, just show up. You know, I still, I still have a church calling and I try sometimes not to go to church or I, I cheat on Mormonism with Baptist, the Baptist church. Um, <laughs> and you know, sometimes I don't go. I still have the, <laughs> the calling and I'm still a visiting teacher. Uh, cause people need it. You, you're just needed. Uh, but I mean, uh. I wonder though, because that sociality, that, sense of shared purpose and actually we're just 
just a community of people trying to serve each other and make things go, you know, deepen our experience with God within this container of Mormonism. Um, and often, if that's not working, what else do we have? Like if we're not engaged with that beautiful sense of relationality and engagement with each other and service to each other, what do we have? We've got beliefs, we've got truth claims, we've got knowledge, we've got all of these certainties. And I think that's just the default. Like the heart of Mormonism is is relational. The default is if you have nothing else, you've got truth claims, which you, you know, baptize people in. I know this and I know that. And, you know, you clobber people with these certainties all the time. Because what else do you have? What else, what other route do you have sinking into Mormonism if you don't have the kindness that Mormonism can offer? Right. Wasn't it a beautiful teaching of Joseph Smith to say something along the lines of, on the other side is the same sociality that we have here. Like there's still going to be a social structure and and if you just push people away who are different than you, well, sooner or later, here or there, you're going to have to figure out how to get along with others who hold differences. And and I just think it's a beautiful idea. Like, like how important are beliefs in terms of like gaining salvation? And I think Elder McConkie, for instance, put a high emphasis on that. But for me, the reality is like what's more important is how we treat each other. Do we, do we actually take the time to listen to each other and, and try to understand each other? My, my greatest friends now, my greatest friends five years ago, seven years ago, eight years ago, were people who thought just like me and we all put boundaries around our beliefs and said like, oh, like we're in the in club, look at us and look at those people over there. They don't fit in and shame on them in some way. And today, what I really value, my, my best friendships are people who we both are strong enough where we're at that we can like disagree with each other, but it doesn't cause us any distancing. Like you can have your perspective and I can have my perspective and we can set both of those on a plate on the table and there's no reason for either one of us to get upset at each other. Mm. Yeah, that's nice. But do you think, and this is me asking you, the American, that a lot of this distancing from each other, this division that you're experiencing happens because there's such, there's a lack of civil dialogue between the left and the right. Like, it just seems to be collapsing. That This sort of sense of shared purpose as a nation, a shared vision as a nation, like something has happened as this huge rupture, and it's being mirrored in the church. My, as you ask that, my thoughts go back to some of this development theory, which is, uh, Fowler talked about the idea that the majority of people don't exit kind of that black and white paradigm. And it's even worse in Western culture. They've done studies on, on trying to figure out like where people are in this faith development or stage development or cognitive development. And what they found is that in these Western countries, that development happens later and it happens to fewer people. And, and so part of me says like, should we expect any less than for people to draw swords and pick sides in, in a world, in a part of the world that still operates in a very tribalistic mentality 
and there's us versus them. And if you're them, we're coming after you. And, and I think it's just a really hard thing because I used, I used to be a huge Glenn Beck fan. I used to be a huge Rush Limbaugh fan. I turn him on the radio every day and listen for hours, listen for hours. And then I would go over to my grandfather's house on Friday. It was the whole family. My dad is one of eight kids. And so my grandma, my grandpa, and, and then all of their kids and all of us grandkids, we'd all pull up lawn chairs and drink soda if you were Mormon, which I was the only one, or you drink beer if you're everybody else. And then they would hash out sports and hash out politics. And in every conversation, there were the people on this side and people on that side. And there was nobody in the group like going into the middle and saying like, Hey, there's, there's good points of view on both sides. Cause nobody wants to hear that when you're in that perspective. Nobody wants to hear this guy who's trying to, to find a middle way. And, and it's no different right now. Like whether it's politics, whether it's Mormonism, whether it's religion in general. Like everybody wants to be on the winning team and thinks they are on the winning team and everybody else is something else and they're less than. And I don't know how we get to a place where enough of us in that middle are holding that space that real dialogue begins to kind of um, uncover itself. I, I just – I don't know what it takes to make that happen and maybe it never happens. Maybe this is what Jesus meant when he said straight is the gate and narrow is the way and few there be that find it, like when you wake up, you're going to find yourself on a path with a lot less travelers and that's going to make it a lot more difficult to have influence with the whole, if that, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. And, but I wonder if that path in the middle is just practice. So I don't think that explain that. Well, I just, I don't think that what the world needs is right beliefs or wrong beliefs. It needs an ethic of, well, I don't even want to say ethic. It needs to have a practice. Like we're a church, all right? So a church, an organization should be a container for our spiritual practice. So we have people saying, okay, it should be this way on one side and the church should be this way and this church believes this or we believe this and, you know, other people are saying we believe that. Um, and, like, honestly, sometimes I'm getting whiplash going backwards and forwards and and right in the middle, like, it, it seems to be without the need for more words. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, what am I doing? Like, if this is, if this is about becoming, if this is about spiritual development, if that's what you want to call it, what, how am I holding myself in this war over the trenches, like in no man's land? You know, you and I have sort of had conversations with each other about loneliness, the loneliness of that space. Well, who am I in as shots are being volleyed backwards and forwards? You know, maybe there's a stillness that we can come to. Maybe there is something beyond the need to hold an idea and really to sit into the possibility that God's not taking sides either because it's irrelevant. You know, whether Joseph Smith translated a book from gold plates or whether Joseph Smith made this up, this whole story up out of some spalding manuscript, what? Does it matter? Like really, in terms of our spiritual growth, what does it matter? I'm, I'm, tr- I'm trying to figure out. I mean, the lies matter. If a lie is being told, 
that matters because that causes a trauma. It causes distrust. Right. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of a way to phrase this question because I think you hit on it. Like if, if Mormonism could grant institutionally, if it could grant some space where you and I could go to church on Sunday and and not be marginalized in some way, and, and not just you and me, but anybody who doesn't fit. Like if we could – if there could be enough space that it was safe to put your perspective into the room and not that it has to be saw as – seen as, as the right perspective, but that it was welcomed as a perspective amongst others – and maybe not necessarily even the dominant perspective. Maybe it's the minority perspective, but at least it's welcomed into the room. Like if Mormonism could grant that kind of space, I feel like the tension would be so much less for for folks like you and me to like hang in there. The trouble is there's a certain narrative that is welcome, and there really isn't a fighting over sides in that building. There is no – there's one narrative. Yeah, no, everyone's left. <laughs> right, right. And, and if anybody says anything outside of that narrative, there are watchmen in the tower in that room who are going to – who are going to distance your perspective from what's acceptable. And and I think that's what hurts. Like – like I've, and again, this maybe will sound arrogant, but I've read a ton. Like I know Mormonism inside and out. And when I go to church, the dominant narrative that Bushman says is not true is what's shared. And I know those things aren't accurate. And again, like you're saying, it doesn't really matter. But for me to feel value in my community, like, like I have to be able to tell my story. I have to be able to say like, here's who I am. Here's what I believe. It may be different than you, but can you at least hear my story? And, and I just don't think Mormonism as an institution has a safe space to listen to someone's story unless it's, unless it's the common story. And, and that inability to tell your story, that inability to share your identity and say like, here's who I really am. Let me take my, my shell off and let you really see inside me. Like until that's welcome, and maybe it never will be, like there's always going to be this tension even if you're soft, even if you don't push an agenda, even if you uh, don't say like, hey, you're wrong and I'm right. Like even if you just softly say like, here's me, here's who I am, until that's welcome, that tension is at times almost unbearable. Yeah, you're right. Um, and – uh, this is something I shared on uh, the previous interview, and I'll be having Alan Jameson, who's my, I should say my senior pastor, because that sounds a bit naughty, but I'll just say it, he's my senior pastor at the Baptist Church, uh, who's worked <laughs> with, with um, James Fowler, um, and he's written several books on faith crisis. And I said to him recently, Alan, um, you know, is it possible for people to be held in a faith community outside of that stage three conventional faith. And he said it's very, very, very difficult unless you have people who are at stage five, who is your, your who's your leadership team. Right. Um, mm. And he said, you know, most people stage at about 2.75 
and most churches will push just above the three, and that's all that they will allow for. So, I mean, in, in terms of the LDS experience, it feels a little bit hopeless. I mean, I agree. Like, we should be able to go. And I think maybe there were times in people's lives, maybe before correlation, I'm not sure. I mean, we can kind of track back and say, okay, what made the difference? Um, because it, it seems to me that there was a time that we could discuss these things openly, that we could bring all of our questions. I certainly did as a teenager, and I'm like you. I read Fawn Brody when I was 17. I'm like, this is really interesting. I want to talk about this at Young Women's. So I did, and we did. Um <laughs> It didn't go down particularly well because the person, you know, that my young woman's president wasn't sure how to make, what to make of it. But it didn't, it didn't mean that I was questioned or I was made suspect. That's the change. You, your questions, your thoughtful questions that might challenge other people's ideas. Or I grew up in, in an organization, in a, in a family and in a, in a church context where they were welcomed. Uh, and you could safely ask these, but something moved. And I think it's worse in Utah, I've got to say. I think there is something there that has sort of bred a kind of mistrust of any questions. Let's talk about that. Like Mormonism says questions are honored, but but then it follows right up behind that by saying like doubts are bad. Yeah. And – and I don't know, man, I, I'm trying to think of, like, your pastor that you speak of, are, are doubts welcome with him? Like, can you go to him and say, like, I have some serious doubts about some of this Jesus stuff? Yeah. And, and does he shame you for that? Like, does he come at you and say, like, you can't say that? You can ask a question, but you can't have doubt. No, not at all. It, well, this is the way that he puts it. And, you know, obviously I'm going to have a conversation, but he's, he says, you're on a journey with God. And that's just between you and God. It's not my job as a pastor to tell you what that journey looks like. I honor your journey with God. If God is taking you into the dark night of the soul, if God is pushing you on to, to question and to go deeply within these questions of faith um, and doubt, and doubt has to be wrestled with. You have to wrestle with, with doubt if you want to know God. Uh, then, you know, that's, that's yours and all I, can, all I can do is honor that. Like, someone shouldn't be shamed for their doubt. Absolutely not. It's like a nonsense, and it's so juvenile to do that. But that speaks more to the insecurity of that person and their relationship with God. And the institution yeah. which holds that that stance. Like, in my mind, I, I'm thinking about doubt, right? So we send two missionaries into the Catholic family's home, and that Catholic family could be active in Catholicism. And we send the missionaries into their home. And whether we word it this way, whether we use language that describes it this way, those missionaries and our church are hoping that those folks will have doubts in their Catholicism to see room for Mormonism to offer something bigger or better. Right? And so, and the other thing too, like, Doubt is only seen as a bad thing. Like the only people who think doubts are bad are the religious leaders of the faith that you're in doubting. Like think about it, right? The Methodists don't have any problem with you having Mormon doubts. And the Mormons don't have any problem with the Catholics having Catholic doubts. The only time doubts are bad is when we say like, oh, 
I'm Mormon and I have doubts and your, and your Mormon leader says, Oh yeah, doubts are bad because doubts are going to lead you out of this. But we don't, but we don't do that to somebody who's coming into Mormonism. Like we honor them. Like you came in, what an awesome journey. You, you, you asked questions and, and you sought answers and you had a conversation with God and you had spiritual experiences and it brought you here and we applaud you. Of course, in Mormonism, we just raise our hand and, and accept you in full fellowship in the ward. But there's this idea like if you leave, even if you read and you prayed and you had spiritual experiences and answers from God, all of a sudden that exact same process becomes something negative and it's frowned upon and it's less than – and I and I, I – man, and I get it. I understand where it's coming from. It's coming from that – that black or white paradigm, but it just doesn't make any sense to me anymore. Like let's honor everyone's journey, whether they're coming in or going out and let's just honor their story and let, let them be the tellers of their story. Like why did they leave? Let them tell it. Why did they come in? Let them tell it. But you know, we're dealing with a church that probably, you know, and I said before, it's staging it about a two, you know, effect. So it's good for people at ones and twos. It, yeah, it, I was it, at a one or two once and it was really good. Really, really great. It's even, you know, pretty good for a three, but wow, fours are just going to kick up their heels and rage. I mean, and a lot of this has pastoral implications, which you're pointing to. So if you are, you know, if you know where a person's faith journey is, you can pitch your, your message to them according to that faith journey. Now, nobody, it's difficult to, to, to pitch a, 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 a faith message at somebody who's at a four who'll tell you what to go and do with it. Like, you know, put it, right. put it in your pipe and smoke it or stick it up your bum. You know, I'm not interested in that. I just want to have all these answers. You know, I've got, I've got issues of, of this history and I've got that and, you know, who is God and what is suffering and why theodicy, you know, like, where is God and, and, and this. So, um, you know, that's, that's a tough, it's a critical stage. And that's where most people ha- have, do a departure from Mormonism. And that's where threes and twos can't manage it. So the problem is that the institution hasn't allowed for the natural growth of the church, the, the spiritual growth of the church. Because it's, it's, come to be about social control. Who can manage this organization the best? We'll give you a leadership position. And that's become, seems to be more important than, than shepherding or not even shepherding or just being alongside people in their spiritual journeys. And I don't think right. our optics are completely off. Right, right. And, and you're speaking like you and I, it, it, it's obvious that both of us are are raising our hand and saying like, yeah, something's just not right here. Let's talk about it. And and I know like in my own experience, I get this – I mean I, I get like 99% of the messages I get from people are positive. 99% of the feedback I get are from people saying like, yeah, that's how I feel and thank you for giving voice to that. But there is a few messages. Some of them come from those who defend the church no matter what. And, and they try to play this off like, like, Bill, you're doing this just for the rise. You're doing this just because 
you're, you're poking fun and you're having, you're having fun doing it. And I know because I'm saying some of the same things you're saying and I can tell I'm feeling some of the same things you're feeling. Like this isn't, this isn't an emotional joy ride for me and I don't think it is for you either. And, and being in like, not in stage three, something after that, whatever that is, is certainly not stage five because I'm still frustrated. And you being kind of in that similar place, like maybe talk for a moment about how emotionally taxing this is to hold this ground. Cause I, I think, I don't think people really grasp what it, like what it costs to stay in this and say like, there's something here worth staying for, but there's also some really hard things that it would be so easy just to walk away from. Like talk for a minute about your staying and the, the emotional collateral you spend in negotiating Mormonism. Oh, that's such a, such a good question. Thanks for asking it. Uh, it, <laughs> there's almost no words. There's almost no words for the agony. You know, and I've had many conversation with my state president, uh, about this. And I have to say, on the one hand, I don't think you would find anybody in this state who loves this church more than, more than me. And I don't think you'd find anyone who's more furious with it than me. <laughs> Amen to both of those. Yeah. And I said, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for the latitude that I have had. And I said right from the beginning as I met with my state president, who's such a good man. Uh, I said, I don't want to be defined by any place that I'm at because this is a journey for me. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know how this is going to end up, but please don't define me by my stance on the ordination of women or whatever it is. And I suppose all of those negotiations, having to negotiate, uh, and, and I'm saying staying loosely because I have to be honest. I've had, uh, you know, in the last year or so, my relationship with the church has been really tenuous. You know, I still go, I still do my calling, but I have to supplement because I don't know that it's such a wrestle. It's such a fight. It feels like an internal battle all the time. But I have to go to a place, you know, so I go to the Baptist church and then I can just sit with Jesus, you know. I sit with God. I listen to the music. I can get all happy clappy. And nothing is expected of me just that my spirit shows up and enjoys and is and, and is fulfilled. I don't have to do any mental calisthenics. Uh, so that, that's helped, but it does take an immense toll. And I know why people leave. I know why they can walk away. It's hard. I, you know, I, I suppose, you know, in many respects, Nathan has been the one to hold me in because I, I feel like I've got my hand f- firmly in God's hand. So I don't feel compelled to stay in the church because I feel that that's the only place that I'm going to get a, a dose of God because it's not. It is absolutely not. Uh, but I suppose there's been a, a weariness about the showing up. Yeah, it's, it's taxing and it messes with your head 
And then you hear people say things and then there's always that negotiation that you have to do. Like, okay, am I going to raise my hand and the whole heart beats and you sweat a little bit because you know what's going to happen because this isn't going to fall very nicely. Uh, you know, that's that you're revisiting these traumas all the time on a weekly basis. Um, you know, you open up the menu and you think, oh my goodness, I can't believe we, yeah. But you know what? The thing is that it means something to other people and that's the issue because it really means something to people. It holds them. You think about yourself when you're most orthodox. Like it meant something to you, didn't it? It was my identity. It was everything. It, I was Mormon to the very core. Yeah. Like it, it defined, like whatever Mormons do, that's what I do. Yeah. Yeah. Because it worked, right? Yeah. Yeah. It worked beautifully. Yeah. And so if you get like people like me and you now in church, just poking holes in everything, like that, that, that's like poking a hole in your identity. So the question, the, the hard work I think that you're pointing to is showing up, trying to honor people's need for that story and trying to carve out a very lonely space for yourself on the pew, trying to maintain relationships all at the same time. I mean, it's, it's, it's a natural reflex to just chuck it all in and say, no. You know, and then the church doesn't, it keeps doing stuff that makes me think, why am I keep showing up for this? You're not doing yourself any favors. Like just when I thought, you know, you couldn't get worse. You'd just do something really, really dumb. Yeah. Mm. I don't Mm. know. It's just sort of, it's a a battle, isn't it? I mean, you experience it as a battle, right? Yeah. And, and something I always try to speak to. So when I, when I do have the chance to, to speak to people in person and, and they say like, why do this? Why keep showing up? I just got an email today and, and the guy's like, Bill, I don't know how you do it because I'm done. I can't do this. I went to my stake president and I expressed to him that I have doubts about the narrative of the church and he took, he, he released me on the spot from my callings and ah. took my recommended way. And I'm like, oh my goodness, like, like we have to stop punishing people for having questions and for thinking. Like that just doesn't feel right. And when I, and when I go to speak to groups or if I have a phone call with somebody who's hurting, they're like, why stay? And, and I'm running out of reasons to give them, like I want to be here and Mormonism is important to me. And I feel like this is the place that God has called me to be and to make a difference, but I'm running out of, I'm, the, I'm running out of, um, more conservative answers to give. And so what I keep falling back on, and this will sound so, so strange maybe to somebody who's a more orthodox believer in the church, but, but the church claims to be true and living and it claims to be true and living because priesthood was restored because Joseph saw Jesus because the church has keys and it performs living ordinances and ordinances for those who are dead. And I no longer can really hold ground that that's what makes the church true and living. Instead, what I've come to grips with, Gina, and, and maybe you see this too, but in some ways it was the church's unhealthiness that woke us up. It was the church's unhealthiness that caused you and me to go, oh, something's wrong here. 
and I'm going to begin to see the world differently and I'm going to be able to, I'm going to begin to hold my own ground. I'm going to begin deconstructing things and reconstructing. And if pieces don't fit, I'm going to discard them. And it's, it's for me, it's Mormonism's unhealthiness that makes it true and living. And, and I want to stop here and say, like, I get if the unhealthiness is so bad that it's hurting you and it's not, it's not healthy to be here, then leave. And I honor you for doing that. But for those who can stay, like the reason you moved out of 2.75 was because the church didn't meet your expectations. The reason you moved into a place where you became not homophobic but an LGBT ally was because the church didn't meet your expectations. Like, And again, there may come a point where it no longer is serving a net positive in that place, but up until – at least up until a month ago, I could have easily said that much of my growth, much of my perspective, much of the space that I hold is because of Mormonism's paradoxes, because of its contradictions, and because of the hurt that it causes. That's what woke me up. And so it's in Mormonism's dark places. It's in its shadows that Mormonism really is true and living, that, that, it, that it's true and that it points us to Christ – and that it's living and that it points us to grow and to wake up and to become something more. Mm, I think I'd agree with you, Bill. I think that it's become a lot more interesting, certainly, <laughs> because of its unhealthiness. And I suppose part of me wants to say, I kind of hang around because as long as there are people who are bumping into Mormonism and the way that I kind of crashed headlong into its worst parts, I want to be there to say, you know what, it's not just you. It's okay. It's okay. You're noticing something. You don't have to rattle around in your head to ask yourself if you're crazy. There is something wrong with the church. And and that's that's a hard thing for people to, to come to because they're always blaming themselves. They're not used to that reflex of, blaming uh, of of assigning blame to the institution but the institution absolutely needs to be blamed um and so if people have got the got the energy to show up to change the institution that's a good reason to stay on the pew i think yeah and, and the institution is happy to let you take the blame right it's it's happy to let you assign yourself that you're having a faith crisis because this world that fits so good no longer does, and somehow that's your fault. Like you didn't read enough. You didn't pray enough. You didn't do those things. It allows you to take the blame and sometimes assigns you the blame. And and I think we just have to wake up to like what you're saying, that this is growth. The moment you open your eyes and say, my institution holds this space, but I don't think that space is right. The Holy Ghost within me is telling me that that I need to move to some other space and maybe we share some space. Maybe, maybe there's some overlap, but that I'm going to hold my own unique ground. Like I don't see anywhere in the world where like that's a bad thing when it's sincere and it's, and it's arrived at honestly. Mm, mm. And I think in many respects, it's a different form of spiritual practice. I think activism is a form of spiritual practice. Uh, and I'm, I'm thinking, like, we're about 30 years behind, actually, most other churches, particularly the Protestant church. 
And that, you know, they were having this conversation about doubt and they're seeing numbers fly out the window. And, of course, they, they, they ascribed it to the secularization theory. Oh, it's that, you know, they, they lost the spirit. They ceased to read the scriptures. Um, you know, I mean, that whole secularization theory has been going around for a generation to explain why people fled Christianity. Uh, and, you know, there are three things that make Christianity problematic and what they still have to grapple with, and that is clericalism, putting all, vesting all of your faith, your spiritual faith, and all your expectations into the cadre of church leaders, you know, whether they're Mormon bishops at the pulpit or in general conference, or whether, you know, they're, they're, they're priests, you know, in an Anglican church. People are looking for the next best thing. They're looking for somebody who they can rely on spiritually. Uh, and also um, I, the idolization of the church. The church was always the center. The church was the, the place where there was, that, that was stable, that uh, you, know, you had to serve so that, because because the church was going to deliver your, you into, into salvation. Well, people like find that intolerable now because they're saying, okay, well, in all of our idolization of the church and, and, and serving and worshiping the church as an organization, we're actually missing out spiritually because it, it doesn't give back the way that God gives back. It just reinforces our attachment to this thing that we've, we've idolized. And the other issue that I think we're facing that Christianity has faced like a generation ago is this idea of Christendom's um, capture by the state. Like the, the church has long been a sellout to governments because they have this way of pacifying populations, turning them into good citizens, moral citizens who are going to do what they were supposed to show up to do. So you've you've got all of this. I'm not quite sure why I got into this, but you've got... Oh, okay. The point was that the LDS churches are like a good generation grappling with those and facing up to those issues of, of Christianity's, you know, enmeshment in this, uh, this, this culture of idolization, idolizing the church and clericalism, worshiping pastors and in Christendom. It, Christianity was supposed to be a movement, a radical movement that defied the status quo and asked for more spiritually from everybody. But it ceased to do that. Uh, yeah. um, so why stay? I don't know, because... <laughs> because in order t- for spiritual maturity to take place, there needs to be the people who poke at it. Like, you know, I, I mean, I don't get to go to a Baptist church... That's pretty liberal. That is very open. That speaks about the dignity of LGBTQ issues. That even raised recently in a talk the idea of the mother, father, God, the fact that there was a feminine divine. I don't get to go to that church because one day the, 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 the Baptist church in Christchurch, New Zealand said, oh, do you know what we need to do? We need to do a complete about face. We need to change absolutely everything. We need to change our liturgy. They did it because people became, you know, found it intolerable. And they started leaving. And this this whole sort of seminaries and divinity schools and theological colleges started having questions about, well, you know, what's going on here? And they faced up to the issues. 
and have tried to nudge away at the possibility of creating different sacred spaces for people where the leaders are seen differently, where the community, there's this power in the community, there's this priesthood that's vested in the community, that the spirit can can breathe fresh winds into what we do and can question everything. Um, do, you, do you think the institution of Mormonism is beginning to see that? Like, like we can't keep doing things the way we're doing things. I mean, we had the, we had the, the leaked video a couple months back where one of the leaders in the church, I think they pass a note on to Elder Rasband or Elder Runland. And the, and the note says something like 73% of our youth are inactive by the age of 21. And we realize like people being, uh, whether it be excommunicated, whether it be they're resigning from the church, whether they're just drifting into inactivity, like it feels like if you go back 10 years ago, I don't know that many of us really even knew somebody who left the church over frustration with the institution. And yet today, like, like I know wards where there's five or six or seven or eight families that have distanced themselves from the church in their activity or completely walked away. It feels like that's growing. We all talk about it growing. Do you think the institution like sees like, uh oh, we can't keep doing business as usual. This, this moment is, is calling out for us to do something different. I think, I think they are well aware of it. In fact, I'm pretty sure they are. They're well aware of it. What they do about that is really up to uh, a number of factors. So, so basically, we've got the silent generation. What do we go? Silent generation, baby boomers, Gen X, and millennials, right? Millennials, right, yeah. So we've pretty much got the silent generation who are in charge of a church of baby boomers, Gen Xs, and millennials. Um, and what do we know about the silent generation? The lucky few uh, a generation that things worked out well. Uh, and they moved into, you know, adulthood, you know, post 50s, 60s was relatively, relatively uh, prosperous. So things worked out for them. You know, everything lined up. I did this. The church told me to do this. I did it. And now look at me now. Right. Right. Uh, so you have these people presiding with no mechanism for their accountability. No mechanism whatsoever. Who have been given, invested in this enormous power, ecclesiastical and spiritual power, but nobody gets to question them. The closest that they will get for people to question them will be their wives or their kids. Mm. Um, and that is that is the thing that frightens me the most. We don't have seminaries. We don't have you know theological conversations. We don't we don't train theologians in the church. We don't train people for pastorship. We don't have spiritual formation. We just rush people through this conveyor belt of of agreements that and covenants that they're supposed to make along the way without a second thought about what that means. Um, it's just the case is if you get to the goal, if you get your sales target, you know, then everything's right. But it's not a practice that's going to work for much longer, as we see. So I don't know. I don't know, Bill. I don't know. I mean, if I could take them, uh, you know, and shake them by the collar and say, go retire. Look, just retire. You deserve it. You've been at this for years. Go bloom and have a game of golf on a Saturday and get out of that damn shirt and let us 
you know, let's start start training bishops and state presidents. The awfulness, as you point to, that happens on a Sunday to the most tender-hearted human beings who are in their greatest moment of mourning and grief. To be treated that way is evil. It's just wrong. It causes suffering. It's a moral evil. But they're not trained to do any different. Like, what did you get as a bishop? How did you get trained? Here's the general handbook of instructions. Next week, you're taking over this congregation. Woohoo. Right. Yeah. Right. And they had training meetings, but there really wasn't any real training going on. Of course not. What it is, it's, it's the area telling you what you need to do next and presenting you with goals or, you know, whatever they do in training meetings. Like, you know, hey, brethren, let's have a look at this aspect of the, 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 the church bureaucracy and make sure we get, you know, the, Tithing banked by this time, otherwise people are going to get pissed off with you. I know, and it's like, it's a, it's, it's a joke. It's an absolute joke to put the spiritual care and pastor, pastoring, um, and, and shepherding of tender-hearted human beings in the hands of people who don't know diddly squat. And, and I sense, like what we're talking to earlier, like, if you, if you make a faith that is suited to somebody who's further along in in this development like that church doesn't do so well either in in some ways like they're stuck it's it's a lose-lose situation and and i told somebody the other day they they were making the the comment or asking me the question about like bill what do you expect them to do if they cave in to to apologizing or confirming the narrative is a mess then, then everybody leaves anyway. And my answer back to them was like, I don't care about how big the church is. Like we want to brag about 16 million. There was a stat that we used to be 5 million 30 years ago, but the activity rate was like 78% or something. So when you look at that activity rate and go to today of being 16 million at 35%, like we really didn't grow that much. Like forget growth. I don't care about growth. What I care about is being healthier to each other. Like, Like, I don't like the fact that my religion causes some people to take their lives and we could do something about it. And I don't know what we do, but we could do something and we're doing nothing. And it just bothers me to death. Like, I don't care whether we're 20 million or 25 million or 35 million or two and a half million. I don't care. What I care about is that we're healthy and it's an environment that we actually promote people to make real improvements in their life. And to be better to each other. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But, you know, I think the issue, though, Bill, is that uh, this is an organization that demands loyalty to itself. That's the first that's the first rule. That's the cardinal rule of Mormonism. Be loyal to the church. And anybody who's loyal to the church is promoted. Now, if I if I stood in front of, you know, a state president and said, I have, you know what, you can't command my loyalty to an organization when my loyalty is with God first. And if God cares about every LGBTQ child who's committing suicide over this church, we've got some serious moral and spiritual questions to answer. Um, I don't get promoted for that. <laughs> and that's right. the issue. That's the issue. Right back, you can have a, and all of our history attests to the ne- utter necessity for people to be loyal to the church. It has grown a, a, a culture that it, it, that reinforces absolute and utter loyalty to itself. It has become an idol. 
that requires our worshiping it. Right, that disloyalty has become an essentially the greatest sin of Mormonism. Like, like you could, you could brush, so you could brush like someone like me and compare us to, oh, Brigham Young and his blood atonement teaching, right? But the fact that Brigham was loyal to the church somehow is, is, it's, it's a better sign of who he is as a human being versus someone like me who perhaps some see as being disloyal to the church by raising a hand and saying something's wrong here. Let's talk about it. Like the idea that disloyalty is the worst thing you can do as a Mormon. Everything else is secondary, right? Like, like disloyalty keeps you out, but murdering somebody you can get back in. And that's mm. what's wrong. That's what's wrong with it. And I think that's what we're bucking up against. Like, why can't we not be loyal to truth, to narratives that make sense? Why can't we be loyal to each other wherever we are, even at the margins? Why can't we be loyal to Jesus's movement, radical movement that was, was supposed to be about this bringing leaven to the bread or salt to the earth? You know, why can't we be loyal in this need for spiritual depth and to God's cosmic generosity. Why can't we be loyal to that? Why does it have to be that you are assessing my person in terms of its loyalty to a set of faith claims uh, and to an organization and an institution? And I've got to say this. I will never be more loyal to an institution than I will to God. End of story. Right. right. I, don't, like- I don't get any pixie points for that. I don't even get a temple recommend for that. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Right, like, like, when did what you believe become become more of a sign of your favor before God than than your behavior? Like, at what point did I can ascribe to these beliefs? I can I can hold loyalty to an institution because of the beliefs that I hold. Meanwhile, be harsh with people, marginalize people push people even further to the edge of Mormonism and sometimes out. I'm with you, Gina. Like, this has to get better. And it's one of the reasons I stay. Like, it has to get better. And maybe it isn't in my lifetime. I know I know people who say, man, let's just burn this thing down. And I say, like, Mormonism's not going away. It's going to be here 200 years from now, 400 years from now. And even though Mormons think Jesus is coming back really soon, it might still be here a thousand years from now. And whatever is here, like I want it to be better. And, and I'm willing to kind of live. And again, there's a line, but I'm but right now. I'm willing to live in this tension. I'm willing to live with some of this anxiety in hopes that whatever I'm doing has some small drop in the pond effect 200 years ago from now that, that, that this institution values people and human beings and, and their real journeys, whether in or out and their real development and their real relationships with their, with their children or with their spouse or with their neighbor. Like I'm, I'm willing to stay and see if I can, at least be one person among a million people who are trying to make this thing better. Yeah. And I think that's Jesus work. That's, yeah. that's faithfulness. Like it's not faithfulness as in I'm being faithful and loyal t- to the church. This is actually faithfulness to Jesus's ministry. 
and I don't know. I mean, I, for me, the question isn't whether or not the church is true and whether it's good. And if it's not, it's, in, in many respects, it is. Let's be honest. I mean, you and I have had that experience. Yeah. If it was, if it was totally bad, you and I wouldn't be here. No, no. It has we're, been. We're here because on some level, it still provides positive things for you and me. Yeah. And, and, and immensely positive things. And I think, you know, I, I spoke about my divorce and, you know, my husband, Nathan, who's still in the church, uh, you know, and, and, and I has been such a rock. Even in his orthodoxy, even in his, I would, sh- could shake your face right now, Nathan McCluskey. Um, but he has been such a rock and particularly with respect to our marriage. So, you know, when we got together, he had a powerful, powerful spiritual experience that I should be married, that, that I should be. I know it sounds like a cliche. I'm sorry, Bill. It's one of those cliches that I laughed at. He's returned missionaries 21. You know, I'm not 21. I'm older. <laughs> Um, he comes off his mission. He gets this, it, it, this powerful spiritual experience that I should be the one. And he's been utterly and absolutely loyal to that. And it has been immensely important in my life. I cannot tell you what an enormous blessing it has been married to this amazing human being who has been so faithful and so good to me and has loved me when I am being completely unlovable, you know. So I'm going to say, okay, look, if this happened in Mormonism, if this happened as a result of his faith in the LDS church, well, you know what? I've got to say thank you to that. So it's always, you know, sometimes there's gratitude. I've got to give gratitude where gratitude is deserved. I have some of the best things in my life because of the church. I have some of the most immense frustrations because of the church. Okay, so where does that put me? Out of the church, in the church? What does it matter as long as I show up and try and make it, make this world better? And if it happens to be that Mormonism is the context in which I try and make this world better, well then so be it. Amen to that, my friend. Mm. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, where do we go from here? <laughs> hey, I want to ask you five years time, do you have any prophet, like, you know, we talked about, had a, had a flutter of messages, like, where would you, where do you think this is going to go? Five years time. Where do I think it's going to go in five years' time? Yeah, for you. I, I really, for me, just me personally. Um, if you would have asked me two months ago, I would have said, man, I'm in this thing to my dying breath. And, and now I would, what I would say is intellectually, I want to stay engaged in this. Emotionally, my body's saying, if, if things stay the way they are, right? If, if your state president calls you in every three months because you say something borderline edgy, on, on your podcast, then, and I have to deal with the tension of continually meeting with him and satisfying his need to make sure that I'm okay, that I'm, that I'm on the inside edge of whatever that line is. Like, I don't know that my body can deal with that for five more years. And, and I also can't be inauthentic. I can't stop talking. I can't stop raising my hand and saying like, Hey, there's a problem. So if I'm going to be honest and I'm going to be authentic, and I'm going to hold my story up and I'm going to hold my truth, all those kinds of cliches, like my body's going to feel tension if Mormonism doesn't change in some way. And so five years from now, if everything stays the way it does, I don't know whether I'm here or not. I hope so. I don't know that I am. What I do know is that regardless of whether I'm in or I'm out, 
Mormonism is part of me. Like this is my tribe. This is my community. And in some way, I don't, I don't see myself letting go of that. So where am I at in five years? I hope I'm in. There's no, at this point, there's no guarantees. There's, there's no absolutes. And I think, <clears throat> sorry, I, I think too, Gina, you and I doing a podcast, people in some ways, like their testimony clings to us staying in. Right? Does that make sense? Like some people are like, like you have to stay in because it's how I stay in. And what I would say is like, I can't promise you that anymore. Like you do what's good for you, but at some point, what's good for me may not be here. And, and I'll, I'll tough it out as long as I can, but I can't, I can't, I can't stay in, in it, that anxiety and that tension grow only because others are clinging to me. Like I can't sacrifice myself in that way. I just, I hope everybody realizes that like whether you're in or out, whether I'm in or out, like Mormonism goes on and their lives go on and all of our journeys go on. And, and it's not based on, it's not based on whether I stay or you stay or 50 other voices stay. Um, but I'd love to ask you the same thing. Where are you at in five years? Do you know what? I'm so excited. I have no idea. <laughs> like I really have no idea. Um, but you know at what? At 2.75, you knew where you'd be at every step of the way. I know. There's the thing. There's the kicker. But I, I tell you what, whatever happens, I want to be a good in good relationship with the church. Because otherwise it hangs off me for the rest yeah. of my life. I want yeah. to be able to turn to it and say, thank you for the graciousness. Thank you for holding me when I couldn't hold myself. Thank you for the, for the good things and the good people that you have. It, this church has brought into my life. Thank you for giving me a spiritual language. Thank you for giving me the hard, hard things, the moral questions that made me shadow box, you know, with myself um, and work out where God is in my life. Like I, I, I've got nothing but gratitude for the hard parts and for the good parts but, you know, I have frustrations, immense frustrations. And I feel a certain degree of righteous indignation about the lack of care that it has shown the least. That is not Christian. That is not Christian. So where I go, I don't know. I'm utterly and completely in God's hands. So mm. wherever God wants me, I'll be. I feel that. Mm. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's beautiful. Again, whether in or out, coming in, going out, like this is a journey and, and we do place our hands, place ourselves in God's hands. Like it's, we'll just see where it goes. Yeah. I, I, I will say this one thing. I've talked a lot about God <laughs> and, you know, and I don't, and you know, that's just where I'm at. That's a very personal sense for me, but I want to say that don't let Mormonism scare you off God. Like if you're going to go and you've had spiritual experiences, uh, you don't need to question those because it happened in a church you no longer believe in. Because maybe that was just God showing up where you were in the Mormon church saying, yeah, I'm here. You're okay. You're good. Absolutely beautiful. Well, thank you, my friend. This has been so lovely and quite healing, actually, talking to you, Bill. Awesome. Well, I look forward to it. And you're going to be at Sunstone again. So maybe maybe one of those nights we'll bump into each other and uh, and uh, have some fun again. 
That's right. You got it. You're a lot of fun to hang around. Uh, your husband going to be there too? He is. He's speaking at the Why I Stay session, which cracks my noodle. <laughs> like, babe, what are you going to say? I stay because I know the church is true and I know that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God. Ha, ha, ha. It'll be interesting. I'll be there. I'm going to, I'm looking forward to, to what he has to say and looking forward to seeing you there. And, and it, it really is a chance just to, for me, just to kind of take a breath there with people who do honor your story. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Awesome, Gina. Have an awesome night and uh, best to you and yours. Thank you. Same. Oh